Welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Tom Galvani, who operates a law firm in Phoenix, where he and his team provide patent, trademark, and copyright solutions to help independent inventors, entrepreneurs, and growing businesses protect their ideas, inventions, and brands. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. You bet. Okay. So you actually started your, at least your student career as a mechanical engineer and then uh, transferred into law before actually going uh, into industry as an engineer. Is that accurate? Yeah. So I was, I was an engineering student. Um, I was really more of a systems engineer, but we did study mechanical. We studied all sort of mechanical and electrical and materials and a broad range. And uh, in engineering school, I decided that I didn't want to be an engineer anymore. Um, And I had met with a couple former engineers from my school that had gone on to law school and then gone on to the practice of the law. And all of them were patent attorneys. And it sounded like an exciting way to uh, continue almost being an engineer without having to do Laplace transforms all day long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Um, what uh, can you elaborate a little bit more? What was attractive to you about patent law, and and maybe what was unattractive to you about practicing engineering? Yeah. So I, I the, the the thing that got me interested in engineering was building. I've always been. Uh, you know, a Lego builder and a designer, and I've always enjoyed building creations and working with my hands. So designing, building, solving problems has always been an interest, probably like most engineers. Um, and so I went to school for that. Um, I, I got kind of burnt out from the math, and I just got tired of doing detailed, detailed math all the time. And for a while, I actually thought about uh, architecture. And so I studied, I studied architecture. I went and did a summer abroad studying architecture and I thought that might be a good a good route um, but then I found out about patent law and it sounded like an exciting way to keep my engineering background still deal deal with engineers um, still work with people who are inventive and creative um, but also sort of pivot to a, a, a world where I mean it's a it's a new challenge all the time but, but I graduated around the, the, the dot-com bubble just before the bubble burst. And so my school was full of people who were going off and starting companies and, and, and doing exciting things and starting four companies and doing exciting things with them. Um, and I didn't want to start a company myself. I wasn't interested in that, um, but I wanted to be assisting that. Um, and so patent law, patent law seemed like the way to do it. And, and if you want to be a patent attorney, you've got to be an attorney first. Um, I would not want to practice any kind of other law. I don't think if I if I couldn't do patent and trademark and copyright law, I don't think I would want to be a lawyer. I'd go back to engineering. Um, so yeah, patent law is just a, a a great way to still work with engineers and um, you know be be uh, talk in that language and still be on the edge of design, but not have to do all the design myself. What having been through this process of of starting as an engineering student and then going into law, what suggestions might you give to current engineering students who might be listening to this that um, uh, if they're thinking about potentially going into patent law, 
what are some of the, I don't know, key indicators or if, if, if you like this sort of thing and you're really good at that sort of thing, what, what are some of these triggers that um, students might consider uh, that if they're true, it, it might make good sense for them to go into patent law? Yeah, so I took where you would you would look at a business problem, figure out what it was, figure out a number of solutions and how to how to carry out those solutions. I took a lot of project management classes. I found all those interesting. Um, I, 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 you know, it, it was really, I just, I got sick of doing detailed math. If you're tired of, tired of that, I mean, some, some of my classmates loved it. Um, but if you're tired of that, that's not necessarily a, doesn't necessarily mean you don't have to abandon engineering. It just means maybe you're not going to be the, the, the research engineer. Um, you know, I, I would say if you enjoy a high level design, I, I really, our first few classes in engineering and then our sort of our latter classes in engineering were design classes, shop classes. We all made, you know, we all got into the shop and worked on the lathe and worked on the drill press. Those were fun classes for me. Um, I, I had a good time with those. If you like a high level design, um, I think that's a sign that, you know, engineering is, is, is great. It's something that you're skilled at. It's something you have an interest in. Uh, but once you, you know, you're boiling down to the sheer strength of a bolt, maybe you're, you've, you've lost interest. That, that's a sign that eh, nobody has a passion for intellectual property law. <laughs> nobody knows what intellectual property law is as a high school or a college student. Um, but if you have an interest in how businesses work or how businesses start, um, how businesses start and, and um, gain access to capital, how they uh, make themselves more valuable or more attractive to uh, in investing. Um, if you like Shark Tank, I mean, Shark Tank is, it's kind of a canned show, but um, it's, it's, they're all real, although edited, they're all real stories of people who, had an idea, got motivated, did something with it, or at least tried to do something with it. If those kinds of stories excite you, that's, that's, I mean, that's a, that dovetails into, into patent law. So I work with those kinds of people all the time. You mentioned that in school, you really enjoyed the classes where you got to design or create or, or build something. Um, as far as I know, uh, patent attorneys are not spending much time actually designing or building anything but is there some aspect of that that uh, creation process that you still feel like you're a part of oh yeah absolutely so, so, so as, a, as a kid i used to fantasize about you know building the impenetrable castle and that's i mean that's kind of what a patent attorney does you think about the core product or the core idea whatever the inventor is presented to you um or that might be building a portfolio of patents a, a fence around an idea and figuring out what's the best way to structure this protection. Um, and, and, and there's still just creativity and you've got to be able to talk with the inventor. You've still got to be able to, um, to be able to have a, a, a discussion with the inventor who may be, um, you know, maybe a chief technical officer, but maybe a garage inventor, maybe somebody who's been doing this for 20 years and working on this one part. Um, so you've got to be able to talk that language as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you made the jump to going into business for yourself not too long after graduating. Maybe I don't know, three or four years or, or something like that. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, it was a jump that was forced upon me. Yeah, you bet. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I graduated from law school and then I clerked at the Court of Appeals with a judge uh, for about two years. And then I, I worked, I, I left that and I went to work for um, a boutique, which is a small specialized intellectual property practice here in Phoenix. Uh, and then the, and then the, um, the meltdown came, the financial meltdown came in 2008 and uh, <clears throat> I was laid off. And so for a while, I just thought, I thought about, you know, 15, 20, 30 different businesses that I could start. Um, some of them probably reasonable, some of them pretty crazy. Um, and I kind of just kept coming back to, well, I could always attempt to start my own firm. And I started, I, I, I did, I started small um, and I slowly, very slowly worked, worked my way up to a, to a, to a good practice. Um, so I never really intended to work for myself. I never thought of myself as, I still don't think of myself as an entrepreneur, but I probably fit that definition of somebody who has an idea and goes out and starts, um, starts their own business. But yeah, I, I, I took the leap, uh, because I was, I was running out of, uh, runway. that, that sounds so familiar, that story, because I feel like my story is almost the same. I got laid off during that the recession, 2008, 2009, thought about a bunch of completely different businesses, eventually went back to the idea, I already have so much invested in engineering. Why not just try that again? But for myself this time, that's that really interesting to hear someone else, uh, I mean, almost mirror that same story. And then uh, you mentioned, I still don't feel like a, an entrepreneur. It's funny, I felt the same way up until, I don't know, a couple, two or three years ago was when I first started feeling like an entrepreneur. I don't know exactly what changed, but it was interesting that, you know, for seven, eight years running my own company, even though, like you said, I kind of checked all the boxes, um, didn't feel like an entrepreneur. Anyway, um, I'm trying to have we discussed before the book the e myth uh I'm not sure if we have, but I am very familiar with that book yeah i mean that's maybe maybe I'm wearing all the hats right now the engineer and the manager the 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 the, what is it, the entrepreneur the manager and the technician and you may you may only be wearing one of those so maybe that's uh maybe that's why you feel more like uh the entrepreneur now. That, that could be, yeah. There have been some really delightful changes at Pipeline that have allowed me to take a step back and focus more on the business, not working in the business so much. That has been really nice. Um, let's, talk about, uh, let's talk about patents. Um, what, what needs to be true in order to patent an idea? Oh, well, well, nothing except that the patent office gives you the thumbs up. Uh, that's, that's, that's sort of a, that something I, I, I say lightly, but it's also true. Um, the, the, the patent office is the ultimate arbiter. Uh, so uh, sometimes clients come in and say, do you think this is patentable? And I may say, well, let's do a search. We run a search. We find that we think it's patentable. Um, but if, you know, the patent office doesn't eventually give you the thumbs up, it's, it's, it's by definition not patentable. Um, there's, there are a number of requirements for patentability. Um, there are things that the attorneys or the, the patent agent, whoever's writing the application, it's the responsibility of them to adequately describe the invention in enough detail. Uh, and then there are things that are sort of inherent in the invention. Uh, we say it has to be reduced to practice, which means you're capable of describing it in enough detail that somebody 
who is skilled in whatever industry or art that it pertains to would know how to go out and make it and, and, and use it. Um, and, and, and so that is not a, uh, bright line rule that you have to have a prototype. Um, but sometimes it means you need to have a prototype. Sometimes if it's a, a an idea that's so simple, you can just scratch it down on a napkin or just keep it in your brain and convey it to the draft, the, the drafting attorney or the, the, the drafting agent. And, uh, there's enough detail right there that uh, they know how to write the application and submit it so there won't be any issues with the patent office. Um, with more complex inventions, you may have to develop a prototype. You need to know what all the parts are and how the parts work. And then oftentimes you will develop a prototype and find out that your, your first idea uh, isn't going to cut it and there has to be a refinement or there have to be several refinements. Um, and, and so there's value in the prototyping. The two let's say the three main requirements are uh, utility, novelty, and non-obviousness. Now, utility, most things, if they're tangible, will have utility. Uh, utility just means that the, the, the item or the article or the idea works for its intended purpose. Um, it does something. It doesn't necessarily have to do it well, but it has to do something. Um, novelty and non-obviousness are, are two requirements for the question of is it new? And this is where a lot of clients get, get caught up. Inventors think, I've come up with an idea and there's nothing else like it. That's sort of the, 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 the cliched line. There's nothing else like it. Um, nothing else like it is another way of asking, is it novel? And all novelty is, is a one-to-one -one comparison. What is your invention? And is there a single other item or patent or patent application or journal article or product on Amazon or something that came before you, which is identical to what you've come up with. Um, and that question is usually fairly simple to answer. We can answer with a search. We can answer with a patent search. Um, oftentimes the inventors done that themselves and they, they come in and say, there's nothing like it. It's only half of the question of, is it new though? The other half is non-obviousness. And while, while, while novelty is one-to-one, -one, Non-obvious is one to many. And so you take the idea that you've got uh, as embodied in the patent application and you look to see, are there other elements? Are there other elements of your invention in one or more pieces of what we call prior art? And prior art are all, all the things that came before you, whether they're articles or whether they're products or whether they're publications or whether they're patent applications. Um, but the patent office, when you file an application, will look at your invention and say, um, well, we found a reference. It's a patent from 1963. It discloses parts A, B, and C of your invention. And then we found another product from five years ago, and it discloses parts D and E. And then we found another journal article from three years ago, and it discloses parts F and G. We can take all of those individual parts and combine them and build your invention and when the office does that, your invention is obvious. It's obvious in light of a combination of references. Um, and so that's a much more difficult, um, it's a much more difficult rejection to foresee, both for the attorney and the inventor. Uh, but novelty is half the question, non-obvious is the other half of that. Is it new question? It's not just about uh, there's nothing else like it. 
That's a really good way of explaining it. I, I don't think I've heard the uh, novelty is one-to-one, non-obvious is one-to-many explanation before, but that really clears it up. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, can you talk just really briefly, what is the difference between a design and a utility patent, and why would someone choose one over the other? Yeah, so uh, patents protect functional items, uh, anything, again, that does something. Uh a utility patent protects the way that a functional item, sorry, functional item works or is built or is structured, what parts it has. Uh, the, 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 the design patent protects a functional item, but protects the way it looks. So it's, it's the ornamentation, uh, the surface treatment, maybe the particular shape. Uh, so if you think about sort of a quintessential Coke bottle, a glass Coke bottle, we all know what that shape looks like. We can all picture that in our mind. It has a, an hourglass shape and it has certain curves. Um, the look that's in your mind would be protected by a design patent. While, while the, the, the fact that the Coke bottle has a continuous sidewall and a bottom wall, an open mouth, a neck, all those parts, and those parts are structured and arranged with respect to each other, that would be a utility patent, how the thing actually is put together and works and what it does. It holds a liquid. Um, a, a utility patent is, I'm going to speak in generalities, but, it, but, a, but a utility patent is typically going to be broader protection. If the thing is new, you may be able to get better, broader protection with a utility patent. Um, if, if your device is not new, let's say you come up with a new kind of bottle for holding soda, um, but it only looks differently. It still has a sidewall, still has a bottom wall, still has an open mouth and a neck, just like a Coke bottle does. That's not going to be patentable on the utility side because it's not novel. It's not, it's not non-obvious. Um, and so you may lean on a design patent. Well, it, it doesn't have new function, but it does have a new look. It has a new aesthetic. Um, and a design patent will be, um, cheap, generally cheaper generally faster to obtain. Uh, there aren't maintenance fees required with a design patent as there are with a utility patent, but a design patent is uh, much much more narrow. It's much more limited in its protection. It, it, it consists mainly of drawings of what your design looks like. And the protection really doesn't skew far from what those drawings look present. Uh, so if you... You, you make you make enough of a change, and 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 a competitor may get around your design patent. And so what happens is you may file three or four utility patents on a design. You may file ten design patents to cover all the different permutations. Hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, what generally speaking, and this is probably a really broad range, but is there kind of a general rule of thumb for what I should expect to pay for a patent? Uh, for you know, utility and uh, design patent. Yeah, that's it. Uh, I've heard numbers all over the place over the years. Um, I usually tell people on a utility patent look look to spend between about ten to fifteen thousand dollars, and that is a start to finish. Generally, a start to follow. You know, like the generalities only. Uh, that is a that is uh, a start to finish number. You're going to spend most of your money, maybe probably under $10,000 to do the work involved in preparing the application and filing it. So that may take a month. It may take two months. 
of meetings with the attorney, the attorney drafting it, the attorney preparing uh, the drawings, getting all the accompanying documents ready, and then filing the application. Once it's filed, the application will be received by the patent office and then basically sit. Unless you expedite the application, it sits for six months, a year, sometimes a year and a half or two years. Um, the application will sit until it rises to the top of a pile on the examiner's desk. The examiner will begin to examine it and they'll usually issue a rejection. And then the rejection initiates the sort of the second phase of fees. You now are in examination or prosecution of that application. And then it's a back and forth communication. You're going back and forth with the patent office in a series of responses and rejections and response and rejection. Um, and so fees are incurred at that time. And you may spend, you know, $1,000, maybe $5,000 in that back and forth with the patent office. Uh, and if you're successful, then, then it ends with a notice of allowance and an issuance of the patent. Uh, so that, that ten dollars to $15,000 range, uh, it's a big number. It is generally spread out over at least a year, sometimes three years, sometimes four years. Um, on the design side, you know, design it kind of depends on the design application, but you'll maybe five, maybe five thousand dollars in that range, start to finish. Um, you know, if you're spending twenty thousand dollars on a design application, you're spending a lot of money, um, unless you have a bunch of designs or an application. Um, uh, you know. You, Less than ten thousand dollars, probably five thousand dollars or less on a design. Okay, and and once you actually have the patent, whether it be a design or utility patent, what what legal protection does that grant you? Yeah, so the the, the once you have the patent, you have a set of exclusive rights, and exclusive means the right to exclude. You can prevent other people from uh, making it, making the the the, the claimed design or the claimed utility uh, utility claims. So making, using, selling, offering for sale, or importing into the country. So patent rights are territorial. They will only cover the U.S. The US patent will only cover uh, the U.S., but you can stop anybody from making it, using it, selling it, offering it for sale in the U.S., or, or, or bringing it into the U.S., that's once the application is actually issued as a patent. Before it's issued, you're in this patent pending status and you really don't have many rights at all, except the ability to send a cease and desist letter and, and tell somebody it's patent pending and attempt to scare them off. How long does the patent pending period typically take? On a design patent, uh, you know, usually it, it's been growing lately. A design patent application from the day you file will usually be about a year maybe a year and a half until it issues. Uh, that's fairly streamlined. If maybe there's one issue that arises, if there's, if there are no issues, you might have a patent, a design patent grant in a year. Um, in the past week, I filed three design patents all on an expedited status, and those are supposed to take about a month to two months. Um, so those are very snappy. Uh, there's a, of course, a cost associated with that at the patent office. Um, on the utility patent side, uh, you're usually looking at one to three years, unless you expedite. And if you expedite, it may be, may be down to a year. Once they're issued, a patent, a utility patent, will last for 20 years from the day it's filed. Um, and so you may eat up one or two or three years of your patent protection just while the application is pending before it issues. On the design side, 
It's 15 years from the day the design patent issues, not when it's filed, but when it actually issues. Oh, that's interesting. Uh what uh, what's the additional cost to expedite something? I mean, is it extra like 5% or an extra 25%? On the design patent side, so I, I typically work with small entities. So the, the patent office charges different rates based on how large a company you are or a large entity you are. Uh, so I typically work with small entities or micro, and I don't work with a lot of micro entities, but small entities are uh, businesses with 500 or less employees generally. I mean, there's a couple other roles, but meets the definition of a small business according to SBA. Um, so if you're less than 500 people, you're probably going to pay at the small entity rate. And with the design application, uh, the cost for expediting is only $450. Uh, but there's an additional qualification that you have to submit a, they call a pre-exam search, which means you're sort of doing some of the work for the patent office before the application is filed. You've gone out, hired a searcher, run a pretty comprehensive search, and then you're turning the results of that search over to the office upon filing. Um, so while the fee is $450 with the government, the cost for that search can be expensive. So um, the, the searches I've done lately are about $2,500. So you're, you're looking at about $3,000 in cost associated with expediting the design application. Okay. On, okay. The, on the utility side, uh, if you're 65 years or older, or if you have a terminal illness, um, you can expedite for free. It's called uh, you file a petition to make special based on age or health. Um, and those applications get picked up pretty quickly, usually within about three months after filing for examination. Oh, how interesting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no client who's over 65 likes hearing that. <laughs> that's why. Uh, they usually sell. It's because I'm close to death, right? Um, <laughs> right. of Uncle Sam. <laughs> you got to get you an answer. Um, you can also expedite it if you don't meet one of those 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 uh, reasons to, to expedite. You can you could pay expedite a utility application. And on the small entity side, uh, that's a two thousand dollar fee, and you, you pay two grand up front, and the office. Uh, has set forth as its guide to get you either two rejections or an allowance within a year of your filing date. And I've done a number of those. Um, and in uh, every single one, we've met that one year deadline, except for one, which it was my second or third application I filed um, under that expedited track. And uh, the examiner just sat and it took a year and a half and the poor client just thought, why did I pay this? This, this extra money, this examiner is not, not reviewing my case quickly, but pretty typically you pay the extra $2,000 and you'll have a pretty good answer within, uh, within a year. Okay. Okay. So um, nothing, I mean, legally someone is prevented from infringing on my patent, but they can still do it, right? There's nothing physically present, preventing someone from selling my product. What what happens if I have a patent on something and company XYZ decides, well, I'm, I'm just going to sell the same thing. Um, uh, what what kind of recourse do I have? Yeah, so I'm not a litigator, so I can't speak too closely on, on some of the details, but typically you start with a cease and desist letter. Uh, they're cheap to fire off. Uh, you hire an attorney. Uh, they'll do some research into the patent that you have on the product. Uh, 
and then they'll look at the look at whatever the alleged infringing product is and decide if there may be infringement there. And if there is, then you can send a cease and desist letter. Um, the cease and desist letter is usually just that. It is asking them to stop. Occasionally you'll send them or I'll get them and, and ask for damages, but those usually don't, those usually don't convert very well. Um, so a cease and desist letter is usually the first step. Uh, if it is a, the, sometimes you could send a cease and desist letter to uh, a retailer or a distributor. You may not send it to the manufacturer, but you know that it's being sold, say, on Amazon. Hmm. Uh, so you could send a letter to, to Amazon. And sometimes it depends. Design patents, I find, are uh, more enforceable, sort of quote unquote enforceable, or, or more likely to get a competitor's infringing listing taken down than a utility patent is. Um, but sometimes you can reach out to that, that third party host or that third party seller and ask them to take it down and they will. Uh, and, and you're achieving the same effect. Um, short of that, you're looking at maybe uh, a, a lawsuit for damages or an injunction that requires them to stop selling. Uh, and I don't handle that at all. I'm not a litigator, uh, but but if you do that, you're then you're getting into to pretty serious money. Okay, okay. So the patent attorney is not the person who would uh, defend your patent should you get into that kind of situation. Yeah, usually a patent attorney is sort of known to be the, a patent prosecutor, which means they prosecute, they uh, they file, and they work with the patent office in the examination of your application to get a patent. Uh, a patent litigator is 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 the attorney on the other end of the process once there is a patent issued and it needs to be enforced. Got it. That makes sense. Uh, can you speak a little bit to what does it mean first to file and how can businesses take advantage of that concept? Yeah, first to file. It was a, a lot of talk about that a few years ago. So we used to be, uh, America used to be a first to invent system where uh, regardless of when you file, generally regardless of when you filed a patent application, if you could show that you were the first person to invent it, the application would, or the patent would be awarded to you. <clears throat> we were pretty unique in the world. Uh, well, we were unique in the world. Nobody else had that system. We came into conformance or somewhat conformance with the rest of the world by adopting not quite a first to file, but a first inventor to file system. So most countries around the world have a first to file system, which means it's a race to the patent office. And whoever files first gets the patent, so long, assuming that the, the examination goes successful. Um, in, the, in the U.S., it is first inventor to file, which means if you are the first person to file on an idea, and you actually invented that idea, meaning you didn't derive it from somebody else or derive it from somebody who filed later than you, then the, then the priority goes to you. You will be the one who um, has the privilege of, of, of prosecuting that application through to, to, to grant. Um, and so what it, what it did was uh, it created a rush. I mean, it's a race to the patent office now because you want to make sure you're the first one to get the application in. I think I said earlier, utility applications can take a while to, to prepare. They could take a month to two months. They could take they could take much longer than that. Um, so if you think about if you're fighting if you're fighting a large companies that have a large in-house counsel staff and have 
establish processes for converting something in the research department very quickly over into a patent filing, uh, those companies can turn it around quickly. Whereas an independent inventor is going to go and interview three or four attorneys and meet with them over the course of a couple of weeks and sit and think about who they want to go with and try to figure out if they have the money to do it and see if the idea has legs. And a lot of time goes by and they haven't filed yet. Um, so, you know, moving quickly is, is a benefit. Um, the provisional application is something that a lot of, especially companies have used uh, to, to, to win that race to the patent office. And I talked about a utility and design patent applications. Those are both what we call non-provisional applications or sort of quote unquote real patent applications. They're applications that get reviewed by the patent office and become patents. There are also provisional applications which are filed but are not eligible to become patents, but they do give you patent pending status and they do once filed secure your spot in line. Uh, they give you an application number and, and allow you to later file an app, a non-provisional application. And the provisional application lasts for like a year, I think, something like that? The provisional application, correct, lasts for a one-year period. And before it expires, you have to convert it into a non-provisional. Uh, but they're much, the, 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 the filing requirements for them are, are, there are very few filing requirements for them. You don't have to go through um, all the formal requirements that are required with the non-provisional. So it's much easier to, if you have to, file that in a day or two uh, in, a rush, in a rush situation. So the provisional is a cheap way to buy yourself some time. Yeah, that's, that's one reason for it. I've done lots of provisionals where a client is you know, presenting, presenting something at a conference in a week and they need something on file right away or they're going to pitch it to a customer tomorrow and they've got to get something on file. Um, or uh, a client that isn't sure if this idea is going to take off and doesn't want to spend the money associated with a non-provisional. So they mm. file a provisional uh, for less money and then they take the year that it affords to sort of see if the idea has legs. And if it, if it doesn't have any legs by the end of the year, they let it drop. And if it looks like it, it could run somewhere, then they, they choose to fund the non-provisional. I see, I see. Okay, last question for you. And maybe this was already answered when we were talking about novelty and non-obviousness, but, but maybe not. Maybe there's something else here. If, if I'm an engineer, I'm working on a new design, developing a new product, as I'm going about the development process, the design process, what, what should I be thinking about uh, if, if I want to ensure that my chances for patentability are maximized? Yeah, so there's sort of, I would say, you know, the, the, the inventor's notebook is, or handbook has kind of gone out the window. Um, it is still not a bad idea because the attorney may want to see it and it's to, to help him or her in writing the application. Uh, when, I, when, when a client brings me an idea, I, I always want a document. I always want a disclosure form. Um, I always want a good, thick, robust description of what the invention is. Uh, oftentimes that takes place in an interview, but if you can give me you know, a 15-page PDF that I can read, that's great. That's a great disclosure. So maintaining that, uh, can be extremely helpful in the back end or in the writing phase of the patent application. I, I would also say that writing that and maintaining it is helpful because while, while you, you, 
your design process will yield a final design, uh, but it may not be the final design that's the only thing that you want to patent. Um, you don't have to patent something that makes it to market. You could patent any idea you have, as long as it meets the, the, those requirements we talked about earlier. Um, and so it may be that version one and 1.1 and 1.2 and two and 3.0 are all good ideas. They're not the best ideas, but they're all good ideas and they could be protected. And if they're protected, if they're all protected, that creates a bigger fence around your idea than if you had just protected the final version that came out of the process. So, um, you know, and, and, and again, the, the, the inventor's handbook may, may show that. Uh, the other thing I would say is um, keep it secret. So mm. in the U.S., there's a one-year grace period. Most people do not know this. Um, you cannot disclose the idea and then file a patent application for it more than a year later. And so keeping it secret uh, is of paramount importance. Outside the U.S., there's no grace period. So if you want to get a patent in Taiwan or in Mexico um, or in China or in Europe, if you've disclosed that idea before an application has been filed somewhere in the world, then your ability to get that foreign patent is gone. Um, so a disclosure is disclosing enough information that somebody could would know how to make this device, um, but doing so to somebody who's not within the business or you don't have an NDA with, or is not your attorney on this particular project. There are, and I should say, there are a lot of wrinkles to all these rules An NDA or a confidentiality agreement will not protect you in all situations. It works in some, but not all. Um, but keeping it secret uh, helps you preserve all of your options. If you disclose it, you create, you create a timeline, you create a ticking clock that will at some point start ringing and expire and may expire immediately. So uh, keeping it secret is, is, is important. That, that's a big deal because you're working on a new product and you're excited about it. It's so easy to you know, tell people about this thing that you're so excited about. So thanks for bringing that one up. Um, Tom, if, if people want to get a hold of you, uh, what, what is the best way for someone to get in touch with you? Oh, give me a ring. I answer. I try to answer the phone always. Uh, 602-281-6481. Or you can check out the website, galvanilegal.com. Uh, either one of those will work. Terrific. Great. Well, Tom, thank you so much for sharing all your insight and wisdom with us today. Um, anything else that, that you want to say before we end the show? No, I, I, I wanted to make sure that we got in Keep It Secret. So that's that's. Tick my last box. Can we add another S? We'll keep it secret, stupid. It's the new KISS principle. Keep it secret, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tom. Well, thank you so much again. Thanks, Aaron. Bye-bye. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening.